Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 49. Today we're looking at a sermon entitled, Consider Jesus. And that title comes straight from the text that we'll be looking at today, which is Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews is really a unique book in the Bible because it's written as one long sermon to its original audience. So you have a lot of application and a lot of exhortation, a lot of instruction given to us straight from the text itself. And it's really an enjoyable book to read as the author frequently talks about concepts in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills those things. And when we get to chapter 3, the author is making the point for us to consider Jesus the author of our salvation and the one who has accomplished all things for us. This episode is brought to you by my patrons over at patreon.com. I want to thank them for their support, and I want to ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the work that I do at betterbiblereading.com. If you feel so led, I want to invite you to go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash betterbiblereading. You have three options of how to pledge your support, and when you do, you'll receive exclusive goodies and content from me as a way of saying thanks for your support. Well, without further ado, let's now listen to Consider Jesus from Hebrews chapter 3. This morning, we're thinking about the concept that the author to the Hebrews gives us in the very first verse, and he says this, the imperative. He says, consider Jesus. That's going to be our main focus this morning as we survey this passage. And uh, we will do that beginning with that very first verse. And let me just, by way of introduction, catch us up because those of us who aren't in the ladies' Bible study haven't been in Hebrews Um, So you all have a good advantage. It's Mother's Day, so I'm trying to help you out here. But uh, for those of you who haven't been in Hebrews recently, um, we're only in the third chapter this morning, so we don't have quite as much to catch up on. But just by brief uh, summary, the author to the Hebrews has just labored the point in the first two chapters of the letter that Jesus Christ is far superior to angels. He's far superior to any created being, including human beings. In fact, he is the one who created heaven and earth. He is not just a higher elevated created being, but he is, in fact, God. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And because of that, we had better consider him. We had better take note give time, give care, give mental concentration towards the reality of Jesus Christ. And the author is going to tell us why this morning. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I just want to stop there very briefly and remind all of you of the beautiful fact that when Jesus Christ saves us, He doesn't just save us out of hell. He doesn't just save us from making bad choices in life. He makes us a new creation, and in so doing, we become 
a family. We call this the doctrine of adoption. He makes us sons and daughters of God. And in so doing, he makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. I just want to encourage you that that's not a throwaway phrase. It's not a Southern Baptist phrase to say, hey, Brother Ken, good morning to you. But there's, there's, there's a theological category happening when we use those labels towards one another. And it's a beautiful thing because we're family in Jesus Christ. But can I, can I tell you something that, you know, families have to have hard discussions sometimes, right? We, we, sometimes we don't just have these, these wonderful conversations with one another. Sometimes we have to say some difficult things to one another. And the author of Hebrews is going to do that this morning. He's going, to, he's going to give us some difficult things to wrestle with. But just as the case in, in, in a family, when you have those difficult conversations with one another to, to bring something to light, it's in, it's, it's in the frame of, of love. It's in the gesture of true, authentic care for one another. And so if any of these words sting that we're going to hear this morning, just know that it is in the context of love and care that these words come to us that we might receive them. And so the encouragement, let us not throw away that phrase that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ for all who have hoped in him. And therefore, consider Jesus, consider him in your life. Who is he? He is, verse 1, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is a beautiful image because Jesus is our apostle and he is our high priest. Look at the, the image with me for a minute. We know that the apostles, that word literally means the, the sent ones, the ones who are sent, the ones who are sent out. And in the New Testament, those would include the, the 12 apostles sent out in the authority of Jesus Christ himself to go and proclaim his truth. Now think about that for a minute because Jesus, as the apostle, is the one sent by God to man. But Jesus is not only the apostle, he's also the high priest. Who was the high priest? The one sent on behalf of man to go to God. This speaks to Jesus' divine and human nature. The function of his ministry, his work, both being the one sent from God to us and the one sent on our behalf to go before God. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has accomplished. And the author of Hebrews describes it as... The apostle and high priest, not just in abstract terms, but the apostle and high priest of what? Our confession. It's a tragedy that in our day and age, especially in what we call liberal theology, and I'm not talking about the political category of liberalism, but I'm talking about the theology that strips all of the divine attributes of Christ away. The one that says Christianity is just really a social club. It's just, it's just an, an ethics thing. And you hear this a lot that 
in liberal theology that Jesus didn't atone for sin. He wasn't really raised from the grave. He didn't really become born of, of a virgin, but really he just, you know, let's just look to the Sermon on the Mount because, you know, he's, he's a good teacher. He's, he says a lot of good things. This is really an ethical thing. This is really a social justice thing, right? He's just given us great principles to live by, make better choices, be better people. But, beloved, you and I both know that that's not the biblical Jesus. There's theological, doctrinal categories associated with him, which is why the author here says he is not just the apostle. He's not just the one that was sent from God to us to give us a better way to live. He's not just sent on from our behalf to God to maybe see if we can, you know, twist the Father's arm and, and kind of be on good, good graces with him. But no, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And our confession is Jesus' work as apostle and high priest. He came on behalf of God to teach the truth to us, but he also, as our substitute, went on our behalf to God to bring us to God. That's the gist of the, the entire rest of the letter here in the book of Hebrews. And here's how he moves, here's how he transitions in this conversation, because remember, in the first two chapters, he's making the case that Jesus is far superior to angels. He's far superior to created beings. But now let's look at the Old Testament for a moment. Is he better than all those in the Old Testament? And he goes this route. He brings up Moses. Verse 2, Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. This is so important for us to understand that in the Old Testament, we don't just have characters, Bible story characters, that we try to watch and learn from. Be more like Moses. Be more like David. Be more like Solomon. Be more like Noah. That's not the argument that the author is making here. In fact, he points to Moses in a biblical theology view here, which is to say that the Old Testament is pointing us towards Jesus Christ. There's not this massive disassociation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is giving us types and shadows of who Jesus Christ is. And that's the function that Moses has here in the argument, this motif of the letter that the Hebrew author is giving us. He says, Moses, just as he was also faithful in all God's house, that Moses was, if we can say it this way, a type of Christ. He gives us a picture of Jesus. And you can see this all throughout, especially the book of Exodus, that he's a type of Christ. He's a picture of who Jesus is. But there's not a one-to-one -one correlation by any means. Because we get to verse 3, says this, to make sure we don't think that he's getting at that point. He says this, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. How much more glory? As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. This is reminds me of 
back a few years ago when I was in high school. I say a few years, almost been 10, so I'm getting, getting, getting old. I feel your pain. Back a few years ago, when I was in high school, I took a liking to the construction classes and I learned how to do brick and block work. And I began to excel at it. I put a lot of time and effort into it. And I, I made a good friend in high school. His name's Garrett and we're still friends today. And we, you know, we weren't the normal kids where you just go home and play video games or go hang out like a normal social person does. No, we would ride around on our own, he had already moved to Tennessee, I'm living around here, and we would drive around and take notice of any kind of masonry construction. We would look at this new building that's implementing this brickwork or blockwork, and of course he was actually working as a brick mason. So what we would do is as we would ride around in our lives throughout the week and see things, we would actually take pictures of it and send it to the other one. Now you've all done that, right? Of course not. And what we would do is we would look at these works, these efforts put forth by these masons, and we would have one of two comments to make. We would say, this looks really good, or we would say, SMH. Now, this was before the emojis were a thing, so we couldn't use those. We had to actually use abbreviations for real words, believe it or not. And that was just the shaking my head in disbelief. So very often we would find this just poorly constructed building or just the design was terrible or they just did a sloppy job laying the brick or block. We would just text each other and just be like shaking my head, look at this thing, it's just terrible. Now, in our text, Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Now, what Garrett and myself were doing when we would see these is we weren't making a big deal of the brick itself, but we were making a big deal of the builders. We were making a big deal of what they had done or what they had didn't do properly in their construction techniques. You look at this building, right? There, this is a new building. We're thankful for it. We look around, but, but we don't just get infatuated with the drywall and say, oh man, look at that drywall. That drywall is beautiful. The plumbing in this church is magnificent. We don't say that. We, we say, man, that, that was a good plumber. That was a great drywall person that, that hung that drywall, that taped and mudded it, got everything looking good, because the building speaks to the builder. The point of a building is not for us to worship the building materials, it's to exalt and honor the ones who built it. And that's what is happening here, that Jesus Christ is associated as not just part of the house, as Moses was, but so much more the builder himself. And beloved, we are God's house, but can I tell you that we oftentimes think that we're do the honor of the builder. We, we, we want to be exalted. Now, what would happen if, if a brick, just go with me here on this illustration, if a brick said, I'm going to lay myself on this wall and I'm going to do a great job and everybody's going to know how awesome I am. Is that going to work ever? No, it's not going to work. Now, that's a funny little image, but that's what we do. Jesus Christ is the one 
who is owed the glory and honor. But we want to say, let's, let's move you to the building and let's, let's make us, us the builder for a little while. Let's get a little bit of honor for ourselves. And the author is saying, consider Jesus, not created being, not highly exalted angel, son of God, worthy of more glory and honor than the house itself because he is the builder of the house. And here's the argument that the author makes. For every house is built by someone, verse 4, but the builder of all things is God. This is a very explicit verse which speaks to the divinity of Jesus Christ. He just said Jesus is the builder. And then he says here, the builder of all things is God. If you're in a conversation with somebody and they're asking you about these texts that speak to the fact that Jesus is God, well, here's one of them. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, here's that contrast again, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if, we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What do we do with, with that verse? How, how do we make sense of, of this? And in fact, as Christians, are we supposed to walk around confidently and in a, in a boastful frame, in a boastful demeanor? How do we make sense of what he's saying here? Well, one of the first things that we want to do is notice that Moses, it says he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that no greater prophet ever arose than Moses. Moses was the ideal, the token prophet. And yet, in Deuteronomy 18, he says, look, there's coming a time when a prophet far exceeding me is going to come. Listen to him. I've in brief shadows and pictures spoken to the reality of who he is, but when he comes, listen to him. He is far greater than I. He gets to the book of Acts, and the apostles are, are citing this and saying, here, here he is. Here's the greater prophet. You get to the Gospel of John, and they're wondering, is Jesus, is he the prophet that's to come? What were they talking about? They're talking about what Moses had mentioned, this greater prophet is going to come. And that's who Jesus is. And here we are in the aftermath. The things that were to be spoken later have been spoken. Jesus has come. The gospel has been preached. And we are his house, the house of the builder himself, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What should those things be? Well, we read elsewhere, it says, finish this verse for me. Let the one who boasts, boast what? In the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus is our confidence. Jesus is 
the boasting that we have. The boasting is not to elevate ourselves. That's, he just got through arguing that we're not supposed to do that. He just got through making the distinction between the builder and the building. But how are we a proper building? We rightly demonstrate and point to our builder. If you were to look at your life in this category of being God's building, God's house, what exactly are you showing off? What are you demonstrating to the world? Are you demonstrating yourself? Are you the termination point? Are you the end goal? Or are you exalting your builder? It's an important question we have to wrestle with. And the author is saying, if we're exalting our builder, that is how we are to have proper confidence and boasting. Now he moves here and starts to cite Psalm 95. One of the interesting things about the book of Hebrews is that the author writes this really as one big sermon. So we can follow his line of thought. He automatically gives us the applications. He automatically gives us the things to think about. And this is kind of what he does. He gives us Psalm 95, quotes four verses from it. And then he kind of makes an exposition of it in the rest of the chapter. And that's what we're going to follow his line of thought. And this is where we need to pay special sobering attention to what the text says. Here's what he says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, let me just briefly stop here and just say that this is another good takeaway verse to argue that the Bible is God's word. The Bible is inspired because he's quoting a psalm and he says, who's the author of the psalm? Who says this? The Holy Spirit says this. This is another example of where we can go and say the Bible expresses itself to be the word of God divinely written. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Encouragement for all of us today. Walk out of here knowing without any question in your mind, do not follow your heart. I hope that's plain. I hope that's clear. I hope you understand that. But we live in a Disney World culture, don't we? Follow your heart. Whatever works for you, we're fine with. Do what makes you happy. Chase after your dreams at anybody else's expense. Follow your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's going to get into what that means. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test. And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They followed their heart. It didn't work out for them. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's a beautiful thing happening here that we may not notice at first glimpse. And that is, Jesus has just been described to us in all three of the categories and offices that he takes up 
that he fulfills, and that is prophet, priest, and king. And you can see this in the argument that the author makes. He starts out by saying in the chapter, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then he moves to Moses and says he's the fulfillment of Moses, who was the token prophet. And then here, by quoting Psalm 95, if you were to turn to Psalm 95, it is a psalm that exalts God as king. And so he's just made an argument. Look, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king. He is the fulfillment of all things spoken of. Consider him. Take note of who he is according to God's word. Here's our application given to us. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What does that heart do? Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And what is he talking about? He's talking about what the psalm just said. Today. If you hear his voice. And beloved, as much as we gather together and hear the word of God, we hear his voice proclaiming his truth to us. We're here in what we call Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. But the question is, are we in God's true, invisible, universal church? We might be in a building We might be gathered here. We might have been coming here for a long time. But have you considered Jesus honestly? Have you considered the Jesus of the Bible? Not the Jesus of your own mind. Not the Jesus of your own invention. Not the parts of Jesus that we want to make and shape into our own version of him. But the Christ who is. Have you considered him? Do you consider him? Are you his house? Exhort one another today, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the problem of deceit it's deceitful. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Deceit is deceitful. And that means if you have been deceived, you won't know it because you're deceived. That is why the author says, exhort one another. Beloved, there's a beautiful thing again. Here we come back to the very first thing the author wants to tell us. There's a beautiful thing of belonging to God's family. There's a beautiful thing of brothers who dwell in unity. And there's a beautiful thing when we have people to look for our blind spots. Proverbs 18 says that he who isolates himself seeks his own desire and breaks out against all sound judgment. As a dangerous place to be, to be in here physically but totally alone because we've 
diminished every possibility of having brothers and sisters to dwell among us. That's, that's why we do more than corporately gather for 1045 to 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings. We, to put it in a contemporary phrase, go through life together. Uh, to me, it's just starting to sound cheesy at this point, but it's what we're doing. We're gathering together as God's people, and one of the reasons we do that is because we need some exhortation from one another because deceit is deceitful. And if you're deceived, you won't know it because it's deceitful. And therefore, we need one another. We never graduate to a point where we say, I'm really, at this point in my life, I'm really mature, and I just, you know, I like to talk into a lot of other people's lives, but I don't really need anybody to talk into mine. Now, to be sure, we want wise, godly counsel, right? But, beloved, there's an encouragement. How do we not be like those who were in the wilderness and went after the deception of their own hearts? Well, one of the things that we do is we don't become individualistic, isolated Christians. There's a corporate, family, we aspect to Christianity. And we want to keep that. We want to hold that high because if we don't, we will go astray, period, end of story. God has not designed his body to be cut off into individual pieces and spread around. We are to dwell together in unity. And so he gives that warning. What is the encouragement of that? We have come, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. We're sharing in Christ the glories of Jesus Christ, the glory of our builder. We share in that. In fact, verse 14 and verse 6 are really constructed the same exact way. He says... We are his house if, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if. And because of that, we can kind of look at verse 14 to give even more light to what verse 6 says. The if in verse 6 was, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 14 is if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Verse 15, again, he throws out that Verse from Psalm 95, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, what's happening here is the author is giving us grounds for true, proper assurance of our salvation. But you know, to have true assurance of salvation, what's necessary is that we cut off all false assurances. This is not one of those situations where we're talking about you doubt your salvation and you doubt your salvation and you doubt your salvation and you feel really bad and have this emotional experience today and then we'll see what happens next week. That's not what's happening here. The author is telling us, consider Jesus Christ. Consider Him. If you're not considering Him, if your life is not grounded in him. We know sanctification is a process, but if Jesus Christ is not what and who you seek to glorify, we can't rightly say that we are his house. 
And that's the alarming reality that we must wrestle with when we read this. I mean, who is he writing to? He's writing to holy brothers. He's writing to those associated with God's church. But we must not assume that physical presence equates to a heart belonging to Christ. And that's the danger that we see in verses 16 through 19. Here's the sobering thought for us. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who, were, who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here's the danger. The example that he gives us of the danger of being deceived in our hearts and not considering Jesus Christ as our Savior, the example given is not Sodom and Gomorrah. The example given is not the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. The example is not Goliath. The example is not King Nebuchadnezzar and those of Babylon. The example is those of Israel in the wilderness. That's the example that we should take special care to consider. It is not those outside, but those inside that he tells us to look to as examples of the dangers and deceitfulness of sin. That's a tough thing for us to work through in our minds. The phrases that he used to describe them are those who rebelled, those who sinned, those who were disobedient, and finally, those of unbelief. Now, lest we think that what he's getting at is a, is a loss of salvation, losing our salvation, we just need to look at that quotation of Psalm 95, and he says this, he was provoked of these people because they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. We're not talking about people who were true, authentic believers and then lost it somehow. We're talking about those who have put on a facade. They've been in, 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 a, in a physical association, but not a true belonging to. But the difficulty is that they were deceived. Doesn't Jesus say at the end that many will come to him shocked? Lord, Lord, didn't we? Here's my resume. Here's how many times I was at church. Here's how many times I cooked stuff for the fellowship meal. Here's how many times I was involved in the co-op. Here's how many Bible studies I went to. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. I didn't know you for a little while and then things got Terrible? I never knew you. That's what he's saying here. We're not talking about a loss of salvation. We're talking about a fictional Christianity. Therefore, consider Jesus. Consider him. In Presbyterian terminology, we distinguish this from 
the visible church and the invisible church. This is the visible church. Not everybody in here may be saved. There's the invisible church. There's the church as God sees it. All those who are truly saved, universally speaking, of all times, not just today in 2019. But there's the visible church where we go through life together. But do we belong to Jesus Christ? Have we truly considered him the way that the author says, the apostle? Do we believe he really came from God to us? And high priest, was he really the true sacrifice on our behalf of our confession? Do we believe the message that he preached? Do we believe that he is God? Do we believe he is the Son of God? If we do, let us not be like those in the wilderness who were right there, saw everything that God did, and yet turned away. Many of us in here have seen amazing things that God has done in people's lives. True salvation, true change. God continues to bless us and grow us. We're seeing evidence of his work, of his love and care for us. That's our incentive not to say, okay, I know a little bit about him. I'm a little bit bit of a better person now. I can go on about my way. But even more so to consider him in greater capacity. It doesn't get old to consider Jesus. And we don't graduate from the gospel. It is our oxygen. It's not something we can do without. It's not something we, we go beyond. Grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ and a consideration of him. Not our version of him, but who he is, beloved. Who Christ is. And therefore our encouragement this morning is to take seriously what's said. We don't have time to go into the next chapter, but the thing that that he says is what we're after is rest in Christ. Now, I didn't pick the the Old Testament reading this morning in, in the liturgy, but one of the things that was said about Noah is, is he going to be the one to finally give us rest? And Jesus Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who labor, I will give you rest. And that is what we're after. Not just rest, but rest in him. Rest in him, beloved. So let me read just that first verse of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Beloved, let us believe on Christ. If we're a true believer, let us glorify him in that. Let us be his building, his workmanship. But let us remember that the focus and glory doesn't terminate on us. It should go to him. We should represent our Savior as the great and wonderful builder. Let us do so by faith. Let us not do so by being deceived. And let us ask God's help to that end. Amen. Let's pray. Well, friends, thanks for listening to that. And if you want to have the show notes, which would be, in this case, the basically the sermon notes to that, 
uh, you can head over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 49. And while you're there, you may as well get caught up on any of the episodes you've missed because you'll find them all there as well. Again, another shout out to my patrons because I appreciate all the support to help make this possible, to help me offset the cost and just support me in general for the work I'm doing at Better Bible Reading. And if you want to be a patron, again, that website is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Better Bible Reading. When you become a patron, you gain access to exclusive content, and I would be happy to share it with you as my way of saying thanks for your support. Well, look forward to another episode with you all real soon. Take care and God bless.